Hunting in Nangarhar, Part 2, The Conclusion. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. I stood to give chase, and an RPG exploded nearby. The concussion threw me to the ground. Damn! I yelled out loud, breaking the radio silence. The night exploded again in yelling tracer fire and rockets. Take cover! I shouted, and the fire team ducked. Foster barked into his radio when we followed the trails to our flank, 400 meters to our left, directly away from the gap, directly away from Ruby and Ahmad. Talibs had another squad following a click behind, hanging back to suppress us at the right time so Ahmad and his helper could make good their escape with our man Ruby, the weakest goat in our herd. It was altogether a smart move, and I rubbed my tongue on the outside of my left lip as I appreciated the intelligence of our enemy. Ahmad, for sure. He had followed us with his team of eight, set up six to die, so that he and a mate might grab one of ours, and organized a second fire team to bring up the rear to perfect the kidnapping. Salute. I'll see you again, rat bastard, but a fair showing. My old brother used to say, our hubris kills our friends first. I bet Ahmad had been watching us for weeks, long enough to spy Ruby as someone just a little out of place, as someone who took himself out of the envelope of fire support to take his photos, long enough to deliver himself into the hands of the enemy if Ahmad organized it correctly. Fifteen minutes after they'd fired the first RPG, the enemy dispersed. Their job was done. Ahmad, Ruby and the other kidnapper had disappeared from view, Foster's unit would have to return to base with the man down, and a live, vanished casualty at that, the worst and most legendary type of fate, the kind the kids make Viking pledges to each other to avoid. One bullet to the head if you see me wounded and waiting for the Hajis to get me, promise you here, promise me now. Don't fuck it up when the time comes or so help me, motherfucker. I'll rise up from the dead and frag you so bad you'll wish the world was flat so you could flip it and be back on top, kind of promises. And a civilian, live, vanished casualty at that, even if he was a soldier back in the day. And on top of that, there was the other thing, about which Gutierrez and I kept our mouths shut for the time being, even though it was dead to coffin nails, that no one would have uttered a syllable about it, even if they all knew stone cold. This was massively fucked, massively non-Shaolin, the only solution, the way those Americans think, was a rescue operation. It was a beautiful, lyrical, micro-epic idea. Americans are blessed. When their backs are up, they know of no other way than to raise the ante till they bring down the house. This is why they always win. The universe loves guts. How else do you explain the appearance of Earth? and the rest of us in the first instance. Displays of guts shouting into a billion kilometers of soundless, soulless, mindless darkness. Foster was on it from the moment we bivouacked. The idea was to give the Hajis no time to rest or retreat. Use the maps, he said, thrusting a sheaf onto the small trunk that served as table, storage, chair, and sometime bed in Sierra Mike Mike Echo Tango our point of departure and return for the night's murders. 
The Talibs hadn't slept, but neither had we. Foster pointed to six of us to start. They complied. The rest of us would be pouring over the plastic laminates, looking for roads or roots or holes in the ground where you might stow a captive. The bigger, the better. The next step would be to film him suffering, make demands, then film yourself decapitating him with a bowie knife. It took us two hours to identify a set of routes and hides to target, an additional 30 minutes to narrow the field from six to three. Foster called in for satellite support and we started receiving digital enhancements. I never got used to this feeling. I never thought men deserved it or that we did either. I admired the steadiness of insects for forbearance and passion and a different idea of how to distribute the workload. But I could not let myself leave the table of charts even for a minute. Perhaps looking carefully at the maps made me feel as if I was doing something sooner to assemble my vengeance. Then I thought it was another reason. I felt self-conscious, as I had not before in a long time. I worried that a need to leave would reveal instantly to these men who and what I was. It was silliness, of course, but that only compounded my mourning. I felt tears well up for my inability to weep openly. A thought crossed my mind as I looked across the table and out the window of Echo Tango. It disappeared as quickly as it came, and I grabbed a map to find it again. Yes, there it was. Smack dab 12 clicks from the bivouac. Rachel's tomb. A long hoof, but short enough to get you cover before daylight brought cavalry and hellfire. The same bower, the same cave opening as before. Ahmad had led the men back to the deep cavern where I had first gone to Iqbal. There was plenty of room to disappear there, plenty of rooms and corridors in the cave to make your escape or your redoubt. The Soviets had bombed the Bagram cave near here for 57 days before the Mujahideen had walked out unharmed. When they descended after the evacuation, the Soviets found 41 distinct rooms, carpeting, generators for light, air conditioning and heat, a mosque, cushions and steel frame beds, and a functioning ultrasound machine. After a right-hand turn off the main entranceway, 60 meters into the shadows, the Mujahideen had placed a captured T-62 battle tank in the passage with the muzzle facing out. From then on, the Soviets stopped trying to fight their way into the caves. They dropped incendiary weapons into the mouth as soon as they discovered any. Everyone inside burned alive or suffocated, including the villagers who had taken to hiding in the Karez since Genghis Khan had come through. That was when the war got really bloody and the resistance sought American succor. That was the beginning of the end for the Soviets. You don't have to be a foreign journalist on a bender in Kabul to know that the end of the Soviet empire followed the underground discovery of a captured battle tank and an ultrasound machine. He'll be here. I glanced at the map to find reasons to explain my certainty. Look at the mouth of this hide. Haji could see to Pakistan from here. It's where I'd go. This wasn't the best recital of logic I'd ever heard evidenced. I've always admired the smooth-tongued, but I gave up in frustration long ago. I tried to control my anger. If I exploded, the whole point of my being in Nangarhar would be forsaken. If I exploded... 
I could never return until I slaughtered all the men in this hut. He will be here, and we have to pick one anyway. I looked at Foster in the eyes and emitted a low growl. Okay, why the hell not, he said. If we're in the killing mood and have a fire under our ass for one place or over another, let's get there first. We'll go now. We'll switch if we get intel from CENTCOM that the Hajis took Ruby somewhere else. We left without sleeping and called into HQ to pick us up and drop us far enough away that the Talibs wouldn't hear the rotors. I took point as we slid down the short hill and onto the berm above the cave mouth. No one was around. Maybe no one was in the cave, or maybe there were only the two Talibs left, plus Ruby, hovering and preparing to die inside. Or maybe yet again Saladin's entire army was lurking inside the cavernous infrastructure, surrounding Ahmad and his final man, plotting ambush for the Americans who would come after one of their own. I quivered as the promise and uncertainty of good hunting loomed. I crawled on my belly over the lip of the cave mouth and peered below. The whole thing was crazy. Ahmad stood right there dead center of the bower where I had met Iqbal, resting his Kalashnikov in his left elbow crease and smoking a cigarette with his right hand. I hesitated. I could put a bullet through his ear from here with no chance of missing unless an earthquake threw me from my position. Line it up, pull back the cord, and let the arrow fly straight into his ear canal and through his skull. Foster didn't want us to strike. He didn't have to tell me. It was an unwise move. If I took out Ahmad, the rifle report would wake up whoever was in the cave. Foster told us they might kill Ruby if we fucked up, but I knew that was sadly beside the point. His length had been spooled when Ahmad seized him, and there was no undoing that. If I could crawl down the berm, down the side of the cave mouth, and put my stainless MK3 blade into the soft spot beneath his skull and muffle his cries with my left hand, but that would work at night, not now when daylight was openly broken. From their vantage point inside the cave, they would spot us plain as day. I would be silhouetted and in technicolor at the same time. There was no avoiding it. I had to watch as Ahmed slowly burned down his Bachman Dooley cigarette. I smoke Bachmans now. It's a dirty habit, of course, but it gives me a flavor of the place. I can get the Iranian Bachmans all over Persian L.A., Smoke is everywhere in Afghanistan. The fighters don't consider it haram. Ahmad himself once wearily joked to me that if Quran 2195 applied to smoking, that if one should consume no tobacco because we must, quote, make not your hands contribute to your own destruction, unquote, then how could they justify continuing to make war every day for 30 years? No, the fighters all puffed happily. If there was ever any doubt of the collaboration between the Iranian intelligence services and the Afghan fighters, all you had to do was count the cigarette con consumption. The tiny, skinny, fey, Bachman cigarettes drowned the Mujahideen market. Even Loxon's Morven Gold and diplomats from Pakistan, much finer blends and better smoking, were a distant second. The ISI were no match for the penetration of Iran's KGB-trained security services. They were more adept liars, smugglers, and extortionists. Even in the far east of Afghanistan, over the hills from Pakistan, but a country away from Iran, Persian material was easier to find than Pakistani. 
I go nowadays to the back patio of the Ruby Room in Beverly Hills before the guitarist shows up and frightens away the strays and nibble on pistachios and look at the day on my plate while I let the smoke waft up from the ashtray into my nostrils from my Bachmanns. In Batal Hazar, the fighters would smoke so much that the wind, small fires, and butts would sometimes give away their position. I saw a commander shoot his man in the head for leaving a butt on the ground as we broke camp. That, he said, was suicide as well as the murder of your comrades, both of which were haram. This time, Ahmad's body gave away his position. Tiresias could have seen him from across the valley. I counted off the time till his cigarette burned down and then flattened myself further as he turned to re-enter the cave. He looked relaxed and ready to sleep off the day, though I knew he would not. Foster crawled up next to me as the men fanned out to take controlling positions. You seen this guy before? he asked me. I nodded. So have I, he said. Looks like we're in the right place. He turned to the men behind him and signaled one man, our man, below and near the cave mouth. Foster decided it was unwise to wait till nightfall to invade the cave. If any of the Hajis were sleeping, they'd be sleeping now. At night, they'd be alert and on the move. And if there was going to be a rescue, the sooner the better. I edged a mirror over the top of the cave mouth but could see nothing inside. I could hear no movement, no talking, no cries. The hairs on my arms stiffened as I knew they were in there, doing something, waiting or sleeping or on the move, deep in the earth to emerge on the surface in another place. You could fit an 18-wheeler down the ramp of this cave and move more than one journalist if you needed to get somewhere in secret, though I had never known where it came out or even if it really did communicate with another entrance. I felt the old thrill of sensing prey ahead of me and not knowing if I would kill him without being discovered first. I crept into the opening, pushed myself against the wall of the cave, and switched on my night lenses. The space was Mars black, only meters inside. The fire team followed. The only sounds were dripping water and the motion of wind over the lips of the cave. Allahu Akbar. It was quiet enough, but firm. We knew it was coming, and we hit the deck hard and covered our hands and ears and shut our eyes. Next came the explosion, the flash of light, and then sound, heat, and concussion in that order, but over and over again as many devices erupted in tandem along the corridor. Ahmad had waited until we were inside before detonating his charges. He had used his bait to lure an American squad into the cave so he could take us all out at once. It was a master stroke. The walls ricocheted the blasts and propelled scissors of rock at our men, firing small shards from the sides and collapsing deadly slabs from above. The cave turned Ahmad's small grenades ordinance into Semtex. The smoke and the coughing came next, though not enough. I counted five men wheezing and hacking and one vomiting, though he could be doing both, and Foster and one other shouting to take cover. I made myself cough and tried to peer through the smoke, too thick. I edged backwards on my belly towards the cave mouth. Gutierrez was dead behind me, tongue gaping, a huge hole in his chest and guts next to him. Cedar from California was dead, too, and Thompson from Atlanta. The Hajis had spread the devices along the wall, so we'd all get got. I hoped a few of us had remained outside. They could take vengeance. 
The smoke started to clear when I reached Foster. He was shouting orders and names to take roll, but he was in bad shape. His face and right leg had taken shrapnel, and he was hoisting himself to tighten a tourniquet around his thigh. Foster looked up at me. The pain in his face turned to horror and confusion. How? I heard him say, and I didn't understand. I looked behind me, but the night goggles saw nothing but acrid smoke in the cavern wall. Then I thought to look at myself. My sleeves had been blown off and were hanging in rags. My pants were in tatters. The front of my jacket had been destroyed and was barely covering my modesty. There was no flak jacket underneath. And yet, of course, I was not bleeding. I can't fake my metal, even in a weakened condition. By rights, my body should have been cut in half by the blast closest to me, but my skin is thick. I could tell Foster didn't know if he was witnessing a ghost. He stopped speaking and just looked up. Where are you, Sharukh? Ahmad boomed in Pashto. The men who could move docked or shifted their weight to get low and take aim into the darkness. Show yourself, Sharukh! He saw a flash and heard the report of a pistol. The moaning of a man farther down the entrance ceased, and I knew Ahmad had mercifully killed one of his own, or one of ours. A generator started, and the flash of light burned my eyes before I could strip my goggles. A line of lamps hung from the cave wall. Thirty meters away, Ahmad stood behind a ruby, pointing a gun at his head. I know you're here, Sharukh. I can feel it. Where are you? Which one are you? Like any fire team that had spent years embedded in Afghanistan without email or Coca-Cola, our men had learned enough Pashto to know that this man was looking for someone named Sharukh. I glanced at Foster, whose eyes were wild with shock and disarray. I rose and Ahmad looked at me hard. He examined me carefully, mapping my form to his memory of how I had appeared to him, recalling the whiteness of my skin and seeing it anew. And then he nodded to himself and smiled. He tossed back his head and cackled. Allah Akbar, he said. It is amazing. I knew it. I knew I was right. It was crazy, crazy, but I knew I was right. You are one of those who cannot die. You are a demon. You pray. You murder. You give false oaths of brotherhood. You abandon. You seduce. Now he looked rigid, angry. You destroy what men love and what God commands of them, and yet you cannot die. So you think you cannot be punished. I felt the old fury boiling my blood, and I fingered my rifle and then considered if I could bring the whole cave down on him instead. Then I felt the eyes of the American staring into my back as this Talib spoke to me with strange and obvious intimacy. I noticed Ruby making no noise but terrified from his eyes, not knowing what was going on, not understanding. I realized that even now the Americans would want to rescue him, still not figuring out that there was no way Ruby was leaving this cave alive. Sharukh, demon! You seduced Iqbal. You violated him time and again. You are without pity or remorse. I could tell he never knew in the morning. I could tell you had bewitched him with your sorcery. But he was there at night, seduced and ecstatic. You defiled him before God. And you both defiled me. I had to kill him. He had to die. But I wanted you to feel the pain. 
I wanted you to see him die, to be responsible for his death. I could never know that you would pull the trigger yourself, but Alhamdulillah, you did. And then I lured you here. I returned your treacherous seduction with my own. I knew your American friends could not resist coming to rescue one of theirs. And here I can humiliate you and make you defile yourself as you have defiled those who have loved you most purely. I already knew what he meant. He had succeeded. I raised my rifle and shot Ruby in the chest and Ahmad in the head. I turned around and shot the wounded men in my squad one by one. Pandemonium seized Foster's face as he died. I walked outside, hailed all clear to our squad and killed the remaining two soldiers when they approached. There was no permitting any man to live after they had seen me. It was my oldest reality. They could not walk out of here alive, nor could I make so many forget. I told you my old premonition had been right. Ruby was never going to come back alive. I walk along the pier in Santa Monica and sing of Iqbal and pray that I may have the strength to make no friends. This has been a reading of Hunting in Nangarhar by Michael Furtick. I wrote this story as a kind of literary supposition. Where would Diana, where would Artemis be in modern times? And in 2014, when I wrote this, it was obvious to me that she would be nowhere else but the most severe fighting in Afghanistan. You can find clues if you think about them in the narrative, the moon, references to the moon, waxing and waning, hunting, the tradition that she can never let men see her naked, dogs, etc. There are some other chestnuts in there if you want to look for them. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.